today on Loose Head Cannon, we zoom in on the vigilante scourge of the underworld and window washers alike, Spider-Man. How does he make those miraculous webs in which thieves are caught in a fashion similar to flies? How does he climb up walls without the use of expensive and bulky suction cups? How did he make that stylish costume? I'm Brendan Neistead, the editor-in-chief of a major metropolitan newspaper that hates do-gooders and teenage photographers. And I'm Spencer Sands, a particle physicist with a serious arachnid infestation around my equipment. And this this is Loose Head Cannon. for the stories left for us to figure out by the storytellers themselves. We aren't trying to tear open plot holes or dismiss somebody's theories to brandish our own. We're just trying to come up with the best explanation that we can. Since swinging into our hearts in 1963 via the vision of Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko, Spider-Man has remained one of the most relatable and popular characters in all of comic bookdom. But Spidey has gone through a lot of changes over the years and through the lenses of different media. What is it about this character that remains so endearing? What are the core elements that make old Webhead the wisecracking crime fighter that we know and love? In a slight variation of our core mission statement, we are looking at characters that have undergone multiple iterations to enter the pantheon of modern mythology. Today, it's Peter Parker or Miles Morales or Miguel O'Hara that we try to unpack. So before we even talk about Spider-Man, I think a lot of the the character that like has actually got undergone the change over the course of the years is uh, Peter Parker himself. Mm-hmm. And so I guess Spider-Man number one. Spider-Man number one. Um, and that's by no means to dismiss the uh, the other myriad Spider-Men that we've run into, but uh, but yeah, Peter Parker is the one who starts it off. And so this gets into the history of the character a little bit. Originally. Uh, he was conceived of as being both like a teenager and a superhero. And that was like really core to the concept. Um, I forget the quote. I'm going to pull it up here. But uh, somebody described the success of Spider-Man as, uh, and the success of Marvel in sort of a broader sense as being really steeped in the idea um, that uh, Marvel blended superheroes and soap operas. And that's from comic book historian Peter Sanderson. Um, and the quote here goes on, what Lee and Ditko actually did in The Amazing Spider-Man was to make the series an ongoing novelistic chronicle of the lead character's life. Most superheroes had problems no more complex or relevant to their readers' lives than thwarting of this month's bad guy. Peter Par- Parker, Peter Parker, had far, a, uh, had far more serious concerns in his life, coming to terms with the death of a loved one, falling in love for the first time, struggling to make a living, and undergoing a crisis of conscience. And I think that's what sums up Peter Parker so nicely for me. I completely agree. I think that he's he is such a Marvel character in that way. He has to deal with problems that, you know, everyday people might have to deal with, especially the readers. He's, you know, the same age of a lot of Marvel's core fans, at least, you know, traditionally. Um, so he has to deal with, you know, bullies and homework and all that stuff. But on top of all that, you know, maybe Aunt May's being threatened. He has, you know, some some new villain that's lurking around every corner. I think that's it's it's really important that Peter Parker be relatable because all of a sudden you can imagine yourself in his shoes. Yeah. So Peter, like Peter, as an ordinary teen, is really big to me because he's such a as like Peter Parker without Spider Man is a really meek person, 
and he's smart and he's funny and he's quiet and he's thoughtful, but he can't express that self, that part of himself in the sort of guise of Peter Parker and the idea that the mask of Spider-Man becomes like a mask to the sort of other aspect of his personality is really big to me. And so one of the like one of the moments in comic book moviedom that really like captured my imagination and solidified my understanding of this character is actually the opening of Spider-Man 2, uh, the Sam Raimi film, mm-hmm. wherein Peter Peter can't be successful because he has to be Spider-Man. He is uh we have, we've put the cart before the horse. Uh, Spider-Man traditionally is the high school character, uh, and he gets bit by a spider at a science fair sort of event, which gives him amazing powers. And his first thought, and this is like one of the most human parts of the character, his first thought is an altruism. Uh, his first thought is like, oh, I can finally turn stuff around for me, this kind of loser character. And he becomes a, a professional wrestler very briefly. Uh, and when he is stiffed on what he thinks his paycheck should be, he then uh, does not stop a robber who robs the fight manager. That robber goes on to kill his uncle. So Spider-Man has this perpetual like sense of like that sort of ennui of like, what if I had? And that drives mm-hmm. his character. And so back to the Sam Raimi film. In the Sam Raimi film, that plays out exactly the same. Like we even get the wrestling scene with, uh, with Bonesaw which is maybe one of the most memorable lines from that film. Bonesaw is ready, which is just like so... You gotta love Bonesaw. You do have to love Bonesaw. It's so fun. But um, when Spider-Man fails to stop the guy who ultimately kills his Uncle Ben, he is like perpetually sort of locked in the sense of, if I can, I have to. Mm-hmm. And so Spider-Man 2 opens with him, a kid who, by all accounts, should have been like full-ride scholarship at college. He should be... Uh, you know, on his way to being a you know the next, you know Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Tony Stark, whatever fictional or real entrepreneur world changer you want, but he can't because he has to balance every part of his normal life with the desire to have to be Spider Man. And so in that scene, he's trying so hard to deliver a pizza, like he's trying to hold down this job and he's trying to deliver a pizza and he can't. He just because everything is always in his way. And that scene just so perfectly encapsulated the sort of like ennui of Spider-Man. And it's like a trope that's come up with the character a lot of like, you know, the classic cover of him having thrown away his Spider-Man costume and walking off into the rain. Like he doesn't want to be Spider-Man, but knows that he has to be Spider-Man. And I just love that. Mm -hmm. They do, you know, and I I think that uh, the Raimi movies particularly make the best point of using the, the classic quote with great power comes great responsibility. That, that is the perfect encapsulation of this character. No matter how much he wants to get out, he knows that he has this gift and that it is his responsibility to use it for good. I just love that it's not easy for him to be Spider-Man. I think that's really compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I know Bruce Wayne has suffered for being Batman, and I know life would probably be simple if Clark could just be a reporter uh, with the Daily Planet, but at the end of the day... I think both of those guys really relish their superhero persona, whereas I feel like if he could, Spider-Man would probably be mostly happy to just live his life, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the good thing about the the original comics is that they keep kind of going back to this. Like, Spider-Man can never be, like, super successful because he's always got to be Spider-Man, you know? So, like, the first major love interest for him, it was originally Gwen Stacy and... Um, there's a myriad it was kind of like an archie comic you had like liz allen you had betty brant and you had gwen stacy and mary jane watson and the first like big romance for him is with uh gwen stacy but they ripped that away from him 
and it's kind of his own fault, kind of reinforcing the whole, like, man, you you are kind of shoehorned into this, and it's not even a choice that you made. Um, and I really like that. That's such a big part of the character for me. You're totally right. I think that there is there, the some of the best Spider-Man stories. Spider-Man can't be happy, right? And when he does have a fleeting moment of happiness, somehow it is going to be taken away from him, and you know that. Because greater than anything else in his life, as much as he tries to, to cling to people and and have, you know, stability, there's always something getting in the way. And I think to a lot of people who don't know who he actually is, um, when he has a secret identity in those stories, you know, it makes him look like a big flake or a jerk or unsympathetic to the people around him. Yeah. But it's always interesting that the reader knows exactly why he's having to make these decisions. Which I love. I love that sort of, like, uh, if I could just tell you the reason why, you'd be so proud of me, but I can't, so you hate me. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a, it's a lovely sort of like internal conflict. The one thing I will say is that I, I, I'm longtime appreciator of the Spider-Man comics. Uh, as the series went on, um, Spider-Man did get married eventually to Mary Jane Watson, and he grew up into an adult, which I really enjoyed. And I, I think that's like, this is a little bit off topic, but I think uh, the idea that we won't let our comic book characters kind of grow up or mature, it kind of bugs me a little bit. And like some... Eventually, he becomes a chemistry teacher at a high school, and he is married, and his marriage is imperfect. Like, they have fights, and they're separated for a while. But I really liked that the character was evolving, and in the last, like, ten years, it's kind of, not, like, regressed, but he's single. He's remained single for a long time, and all kinds of stuff. But that's comic book continuity, and that's not really what we're here to talk about, because that stuff's always a mess. Why don't we get into... um, kind of what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man besides just his personality. Because what we've just talked about, the like the internal conflict of I have to do good is something that's pretty omnipresent across Spider-Man media. The great power comes great responsibility line. Yeah, and the idea of like the Spider-Man persona as being really both kind of a burden but also potentially liberating for Peter is something that's, again, pretty omnipresent. Mm-hmm. I feel like the, the character that has the least... Sh- or like the version that has the least of a shift between those two, the one that feels like most naturalistic for Peter to become Spider-Man is the, uh, the amazing Spider-Man Mark Webb films where Peter is like not the most popular kid at school, but he's seemingly a pretty cool dude, you know, more or less. And he's got a pretty strong moral compass and, you know, like his attitude in the costume and outside of the costume is very similar. And that's a, that's an interesting choice. Because we're so used, or like I think the more like sort of classical or like sort of traditional is the more dichotomy between the in costume persona and the out of costume persona. Yeah, normally Peter would be kind of meek, and when he's in the costume, he's cracking wise. You know, he's really speaking his mind, and you know, he's trying to. Some people, some people would argue that that's kind of a tactic to try and mess with whoever he's fighting with. But yeah, that's that's something that the Mark Webb adaptation didn't really have. Peter isn't. He's not a. You know, he's not the coolest kid. He's a skateboarder. He's a little bit more average, I'd say. Yeah. He's not, he's not a dweeb, though. I would say that uh, Tobey Maguire captured the the real, like, sort of traditionally dweebiness of Peter in mm-hmm. the first film really well. Although I think the kind of counter-argument there, as much as I'm a huge proponent of the Sam Raimi ones, is that his in-costume persona is, is uh, much more tempered than a lot of the other costume versions of spider-man that we get he it, I, I i would totally agree with that he's uh he's a little less uh jokey uh the one that like i was really surprised how effectively 
they interpreted this with the both in Captain America Civil War as well as in Spider-Man Homecoming, but this idea that Peter isn't necessarily like, he's wisecracky, but it seems to come more from a place of like hyper anxiety nervousness than cool kid bravado. Mm-hmm. I think they really captured something fascinating about when you know like in the fight in Captain America Civil War where he is for the first time meeting a lot of his heroes and having to punch them in the face. Um, he's <laughs> he's enthusiastic but to a fault. Yeah. Um, and he's curious to a fault. And I think that's really, really interesting. Let's talk about Spider Man's powers, because this is a place where they've been interpreted a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting in terms of headcanon because like really a film version of a character is in a lot of ways that director, that writing team, that production team sort of headcanon about that character. And one of the ones that I think is fascinating is all the kind of different interpretations of uh, Spider-Man's powers. So the first one, and maybe the most iconic one, is the web shooters, or the ability to spin webs. Mm -hmm. And so in the original comics, uh, Peter is able to make... You know, he gets his Spidey powers, and he climbs up a building, and he crushes a steel pipe in Amazing Fantasy 15. And then he, like, goes home, and he's like, boy, what else do I need? Oh, that's right. The most incredible invention of the 21st century, uh, web shooters. And so he, like, tinkers around with presumably stuff that could be found in your own house. Um, and he makes, he makes like, sincerely the greatest innovation in crime-fighting technology anywhere in comic but maybe a green lantern ring is like one step up but only barely yeah green lantern ring you know you can imagine anything but man the web shooters get used in all kinds of different ways yeah and so that that is like a 1960s conceit where like uh super science is available to all of us we just have to kind of put our nose to the grindstone on it a little bit but the the mechanical web shooters were a plot point that persisted kind of throughout like he is it's the it's the greatest sort of like without a kryptonite right or without something like yellow is to a green lantern ring he is always running out of web fluid at the worst possible time mm-hmm. and that's sort of a, a a subtle like sort of built-in weakness i will say though it's always something that's kind of struck me as odd is that if this 18 year old kid is able to invent these web shooters which are truly just the greatest things a why has nobody reverse engineered this and B, why does he not give it to other superheroes? Because conceivably, every superhero would benefit by having a web shooter. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, especially in the Marvel universe, there aren't a whole lot of people that can fly. It's, it seems to be a very select power, and this seems to be the next best thing. Why won't he share? Yeah, but I mean, like Captain America, like if you were to give him web shooters, he throws his shield, then he webs it and uses the force of the web to flung it back in the other direction, like with even more power. I'd be great, like. Give them to everybody because they seem to solve a lot of problems. Like, oh, there's a leak in something, web it. Uh oh, you're bleeding, web it. Uh, need a hammock because you're sleepy, web it. Like, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really great invention, and yeah, it's it's funny. So, uh, one of the first big departures was the Sam Raimi movies decided to not address the like the building of web shooters. Mm-hmm. And so we see, you know, on his on the inside of his wrist, Peter has little spinnerets, basically, which is sort of a it's an interesting take. And so he doesn't have or he doesn't have a mechanical thing that needs to run out. He just that's part of his power set is that he creates these webs. What's your take on that? How do you feel about that? I really like it. I think that from a storytelling standpoint, um, 
it speeds things along really nicely in an elegant way. I also think that even though the films go out of their way to make sure that you understand, you the audience understands that Peter is very intelligent, very bright kid. It doesn't ask us to buy into him in inventing the web shooters, and I think that's one thing that the the Mark Webb movie had to really try to do is to make make you try and buy that like he made all this stuff. And the Raimi movie, you know, he also has to come up with his own suit, I think, right? Uh, Which is a little ridiculous. Well, the suit but is something we can continue to discuss because it is a great definitely conundrum of not just Spider-Man, but like superheroes kind of at all. Like it's it's an issue, except for the Hulk. The Hulk's good. Yeah, the Hulk's good. As far as the webs as far as the web shooters go, I think that they are able to play it up into this idea of Spider-Man developing his powers as some sort of puberty, and it's embarrassing for him. He's already an awkward kid, and now he's, like, growing these really jacked-up muscles, and he's shooting webs all over the place, and he has to learn how to control it and understand what his powers are and learn what it's like to be in this new body that's changed. And I think that Sam Raimi did a really effective job of that. It just speeds the whole process along. Especially like this. I mean, we have to think about the Sam Raimi films in the context of being basically the second modern superhero films. And like he mm-hmm. was, this was the first superhero film in the modern sort of context, kind of starting with X-Men, you know, discounting the, the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman, which not to discount them because they aren't good or anything. I love the, I, I love them for what they are, but this is the, like this wave of superhero film. This is number two. And this is the first one where we really see us like a spandexy costume. Yeah. So we're already being asked to go on a lot of rides and we're being asked to like suspend a lot of disbelief. And I think I could be wrong, but my sense has always been that there's like, we just, we just don't need to explain this. We just need to have this be what it is. Yeah. I think that, I think that it works. There's, you know, there, the movie already asks a, a certain amount from the audience and you know what? There's a lot of stuff that can happen when you get bitten by a radioactive spider when you're on a school field trip. And who knows? I, if, if I can buy into all of his other powers happening, then, you know, he was bitten by a spider, and spiders have silk spinnerets, so, like, why wouldn't he get those two? I th- what's, I think, biologically kind of interesting is that, you know, matter has to come from somewhere, so for him to be able to spin as many webs as he spins, he'd have to eat a lot. Like, <laughs> his appetite would be voracious, and I think that would be something kind of interesting to play up. You know, kind of like Goku in Dragon Ball Z, like he has to eat like all the power that he has comes from somewhere. And like, you know, he has to eat a tremendous amount. That's like Mm -hmm. Saiyans are strong. Saiyans eat food. Um, So it'd be interesting to have him be like, oh, man, I really need a hot dog or I'm not going to make it home. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the webs are fascinating. One of the one of the funny sort of conceits of the webs is the dissolve time. Uh, Because if it were not if they did not build in a dissolve time narratively, the city of New York would be littered, I mean, very literally littered with these webs. Mm-hmm. It'd be gross. Pretty gross. Yeah. But so, like, the kind of classic explanation is, like, a, about an hour. It takes about an hour for them to dissolve. But then, you know, there are situations that come up over and over again where, like, Spider-Man has suspended something very heavy as, like, a temporary fix and then swings away. So, like, emergency crews in New York have roughly one hour to, to figure out how to get a car down from the side of a bridge or to, you know, stop a huge pile of rubble from finishing its, you know, trajectory to the ground, they'd have to they'd have to act fast or it would be equally as destructive. Hopefully at some point he's get, you know, he's given kind of, you know, uh, uh, a guide to um, his powers to the authorities so that they have an idea of, you know, what what to expect. Like here if I, you know, if there's all this web all over the place, don't call the cleanup crew. It'll be gone in a while. 
But contrary-wise, if it's holding up something that you need to get down, you better rush. So where do you stand on organic web shooters versus inorganic web shooters? And I will point out that it was not just Sam Raimi that did the organics. Uh, At the same time as that film came out, Spider-Man's powers changed a little bit in the comics, and he had organic web spinners for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly, uh, in the 80s, when he was given the symbiote costume that would eventually become Venom, that created its own webs. He didn't need his, you know, apparatus. Which 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 sort of narratively do you like the best? Oh, but I we're jumping the uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Like you said, the Mark Webb films did a nice job by um, by basing basically having had Peter steal the technology from Oscorp. Yeah, it's a little Batman-ish in that way. It's a little Batman-y, but it works though. The idea that they are they're using you know biological sciences to create something like. <laughs> like the most amazing web shooters in the world. And so he, he lifts that. He's not directly... Re- he has to retrofit it, which kind of fits with the Peter Parker, the scientist that we know, but it's not like this organic... I This is one I can't remember if it's a, a dumb thought I had as a child or if it's something I heard from somebody else, but one explanation for how a teenager is able to go home after like getting super sick via radioactive spider bite is that the, the sort of formula for the web fluid sort of comes to him as a part of, like, the spider bite. Like, he has this sort of innate understanding of spider chemistry. That's an interesting idea. So he he hallucinates <laughs> and invents in that moment uh, his, his, uh, his best tool against crime. Yeah, or, like, not even necessarily hallucinates it, but, like, it just, it's sort of, it's like a, like a, just, he has a, an understanding of it. Right, because of the now sort of spliced human spider genetics that are you know coursing through his body or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, where do you stand? Do you like a mechanical web shooter, or do you like a um, an organic web shooter? Do you like Peter to have invented it a hundred percent on his own? Do you like outside influence? How do you take it? I like the outside influence, and I think that from a storytelling perspective, I can see why the the inorganic shooters would have a lot of appeal. Like you said. It's a great way for Peter to get into a lot of trouble. If they get taken from him by a bad guy, if he runs out of web fluid, um, there are a lot of uh, ways that you can disable them temporarily so that Peter has to get out of a situation somewhere in a, in a different way that you might not expect. But like I said about the Raimi um, organic ones, and I think that just generally it applies to all of these organic superpowers, I, I, I can buy that. If I can buy all these other spider powers, I can buy that he has web shooters. Yeah, it's not that far of a leap. Not at all. I will say that I am, as much as I like the original, the mechanical ones, and I will say that like just from a sort of a modern adult standpoint, I like the idea of it's either he he starts the process on the web shooters and he either like gets help to finish them or something like that. Like I like the mechanical ones, but when I was a kid and I would dream of getting superpowers, like, you know, all not adult people do all the time. I don't still do that at all uh-huh. anymore ever. But um, uh-huh. my initial thought was like, okay, I could totally get bit by a spider. I've been bitten by many of them. But should I manifest these superpowers, I'm not going to be able to build web shooters. I do not have... <laughs> I don't have that in me. Sorry. So next, next sort of part of unpacking Spider-Man's sort of lore is how do you feel about the spider? Because originally, 1963 superhero comics being what they were, Spider-Man gets bit by a radioactive spider because that's how all superpowers start. In most 
subsequent iterations, it's been a genetically altered spider um, that bites him or uh, something more akin to that, you know, something about like gene splicing or genetic engineering or yeah. just science projects in general. The word radiation has uh, has been pulled back a lot, which is also a reflection of a better understanding of radiation and its long-term effects on people. Yeah, it was, you know, um, in the 60s for a lot of these first wave marvel heroes that was really in the zeitgeist right mm-hmm. a lot of people were were afraid and fascinated by radiation but they didn't really know anything about it so you could use it in a science fiction story to do a lot of different stuff and i think that similarly a lot of people still don't firmly have a good grasp on genetics you know i'd like to think that more people understand fundamentally how dna works I think that, you know, it makes sense to update a story for different times. And uh, I don't really I don't really care which one it is. The spider has been changed in some way and that mm-hmm. change is passed on to Peter. And that's what causes him to uh, to to have enhanced powers. Um, so for me, it's like six to one, half a dozen to the other. Sure. It's it's cool that that has been able to to change to better reflect the science of the time, though. <laughs> so like when my kids are reading about Spider-Man, he'll be bitten by a quantum spider. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, that makes sense. I will say that I like, I liked the way that the, um, well, I gotta say I like the way that Spider-Man: Homecoming dealt with it, as in they just didn't, this did not even bring it up. Just that's how it is. He's Spider-Man. The end. But um, the Mark Webb, if I understood it correctly, or at least the way I read it, the spiders are not specifically engineered to be super spiders. They were specifically engineered to spin silk that would be used in subsequent things. Uh, a lot of times the spider has been genetically engineered for the sake of being a genetically engineered spider, which doesn't make all that much sense to me. But the the idea that it's it has been tampered with, but for some sort of product that it's making um, is, is mm-hmm. interesting. I also, there's kind of a weird inversion there, because typically the spider has gotten loose in the comic books. The spider gets out and you know, does the biting. But in the Mark Webb one, the spiders are fine. It's Peter that goes where he's not supposed to. Um, So it sort of inverts that trope. Yeah, it's interesting that the movie, unlike a lot of the other tellings of the Spider-Man story, you don't have a lot of attention drawn to the spiders and what's so special about the spiders. And he just kind of stumbles into this thing where all of the spiders are being used to spin all of the, the silk that they're then repurposing for other things. Instead, the movie generally talks about the way that they're using hybridization to pick up different traits from different animals, you know, which, of course, becomes the uh, the way that the lizard comes about later on in the film. This just comes to a point, and this has been something semi-problematic in all of the Spider-Man movies, and just sort of a lot of the superhero movies in general, is I don't always want the villain and the hero to have some sort of innate connection. Mm -hmm. And so having the spiders be genetically engineered kind of lends itself to that same genetic engineering leading to some villains, right? And that's not my favorite. Uh, I will, like the Sam Raimi ones, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin are connected via their like personal lives, but they don't the power sources aren't the same, if I'm remembering correctly, right? Yeah, they're two separate projects at, at, at Oscorp, I think, right? But Oscorp is up to no good, man. Nothing good comes out of that place. No, once I, you know, once I saw, once I saw the building in the Mark Webb Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, I was like, uh-oh, bad stuff's going on <laughs> yeah, here. Typically, guys. yeah, that's accurate. But yeah, so in the Sam Raimi one, Spider-Man and uh, Green Goblin are not directly connected. 
but they, you know, are personally. And it's just, it's like one of those things where I don't always want there to be a history. That's kind of why Batman and the Joker work really well in most tellings, because there is no real relationship there. They're, they're work friends, right? Yeah, then that's when, you know, that getting off track a little bit that's that's one of the things that i don't like about the the tim burton batman because they feel the need to give bruce wayne and the joker similar roots or at least they have a shared moment earlier on in their lives uh jack napier is if i'm understanding what i read correctly going to be the official name of um the joker in dc comics starting now so sorry dude Ah, oh, bummer. I will say, though, like, I don't, again, I don't want that connection necessarily, but I like Jack Nicholson's Joker. He is an underrated Joker. Mm-hmm. I think he does a really good job. Yeah, in that, in the, in the great spectrum of Jokers. Let's move on to another power that has been kind of, exp- like, explained or over-explained or not explained in a lot of ways, and that's the the wall crawling, the sort of, like, if it, if web swinging is the most iconic, wall crawling is definitely number two. So in the comics... The idea that is offered uh, specifically in the, like, original... Let me find the quote here. Uh, In the official Marvel... uh, The official handbook of the Marvel Universe states that Spider-Man is able to enhance the flux of interatomic attractive forces on substances he touches, increasing the coefficient of friction between them, between that surface and himself. So basically, his powers are working on, like, a a super physics level, right? Like... Mm -hmm influencing molecular bonding and effectively creating friction where friction should not be, uh, which is one explanation of it. Uh, The other one that uh, the Sam Raimi films threw out there, uh, I think they're the only film that tries to explain it. Every other one just sort of lets it be just, yeah, he he crawls walls. That's obvious. Um, But in the Sam Raimi one, he has uh, like little hairs on his fingers to, to force friction contact to get into grooves or something. What's your take on that? I really like the idea that this is this is something that's derived from the spider part of him. And so having the small barbs that emerge that he can control, you know, it's not something that they call a lot of attention to in the first Sam Raimi movie, but I appreciate that they do. Uh, it's not something that needs a lot of exposition around it, but seeing, you know, I think that that's kind of an iconic shot in that movie is seeing the close-up of his finger and seeing these things sticking out. And, you know, innately, he just understands why and how this works. And so the audience buys into it and he just can crawl up walls now. I, yeah, I kind of like the explanation. I, I prefer it to not be some sort of like super physics explanation, um, that it is more closely related to the biology of, uh, of a spider, right? And not some sort of... Yeah, that's one of, the, that's one of the cool things that any spider can do is climb up a lot of surfaces in a home or in a building where, you know, if you were a person that was shrunk down to that size, there's no way, you, you know, your skin would not stick to the wall. But because of the way that the spider's legs are constructed, it can. Uh, prove um, it. You know, similar to, like, similar to like a gecko, they all have different materials on their hands that allow them to climb really, really well. And so it makes sense to me that he would get that from the spider DNA. Another version of Spider-Man that deals with the idea of wall crawling is the Spider-Man 2099 imprint. Oh, yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, I love that costume. Sort of Dio de las Muertes meets Spider-Man. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did When I was a kid, I looked at it. It just it wasn't Spider-Man, so I wasn't into it. But as an adult and as somebody like interested in design, I love that Spider-Man. And his power set is a little different than the original Spider-Man. Uh, and his power set includes basically like kind of retractable claws on his uh, fingers and toes that allow him to dig into the surface and make contact there, which I like. (laughs) I like that explanation. That's cool. 
Yeah, I dig that. I mean, it's a little it's a little bit more of like the sort of gritty realistic kind of thing where like if he was to climb up the side of a building, that would be massive property damage, <laughs> um, which is, you know, semi problematic. But I, I like that. I like I like an explanation that feels grounded a little bit more than the sort of traditional comic book explanation. I don't think Homecoming addressed the stickiness in any specific way. And like the cartoon series uh, from our youth never, I don't recall, brought it up in a specific way. And even like the Ultimate Comics never brought it up in a specific way. But I, I do appreciate the more sort of biological function, like the idea that it's hair or claws or something. Even if it's like like the sort of gecko effect of they have all these like little micro folds in their skin, something. But I guess if it was that, he couldn't wear gloves. Um, but whatever. I like I like the hair or the claws kind of notion. It's surprising to me that given given how much time was spent in the Mark Webb web interpretation on the on the web gauntlets, that there wouldn't be some explanation for why he can climb up walls. You know, I think that if they were if they really wanted to go full tilt on a more grounded interpretation, you know, it might make sense for that to be engineered into the suit rather than into his body. But then you don't get the scene like where he's on the subway train and he freaks out and all of a sudden he's sticking to the ceiling, right? I, which I, I kind of like that as a as a as the sort of like us getting a window into him having powers. I like when Peter pulls the banner off of the side of the off of the side of the bus in um in the original uh, Sam Raimi one, I like I like the discovery of powers as sort of a trope. In the original uh, uh, Amazing Fantasy 15, he jumps out of the way of a car, and then he's just like, what? I'm stuck to the side of a building. And like I, I like that moment of like, whoa, things have just gotten cool for me. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm kind of happy that we didn't... I, uh... <laughs> Shy of the Sam Raimi explanation, I don't know how like any of the subsequent films could explain it away without getting into like weird science. I think it just has to be one of those things that we we either just accept that it happens or it's some sort of hair like claw thing. Yeah, he's Spider Man. This is just a power that he has. Deal with it. I think the films have handled the notion of spider sense really interestingly too, because it's a it's an unusual one. In the comics, Spider Man has his spider sense, which. None of the spiders I have dealt with in my life um, have a spider sense that I'm aware of, but um, this sort of precognitive ability that enhances his reflexes to sort of an insane level. You know, in the in the comics, we'd often get that cool shot where like half of his face looks like Spider-Man and there's like the sort of lines around um, his head, uh, which I drew a lot as a child. And every time I would draw it, like, I, it's so iconic in my mind, the sort of, like, squiggly lines coming out of his head to indicate that his spider senses are happening. Mm-hmm. But when it, people would see me draw that, they'd always think it was, like, somehow, like, the male portion of the reproductive cycle. <laughs> it's like, why does he have sperm all around his head? And it's like, oh, man, read a comic book. No, it's a spidey sense. If you, if you Google spider sense, you'll see the exactly what I'm talking about. And I now see why people said that about my pictures. So I'm over it. Uh, but um, so well, most of the movies haven't really addressed it directly, the idea of the spider sense. The only thing that I can recall is in the Sam Raimi movies, you get these like slow-mo segments, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be directly representative of Spidey Sense and him being able to kind of, you know, take a take a snapshot of time and freeze it and understand what's going on, but... I like that they don't call it out. I appreciate that it seems everybody has sort of agreed we don't need to say Spider Sense. Mm-hmm. I like that they just sort of either his explain it as his his other senses are really enhanced or something to that effect. 
instead of the sort of idea that it's like precognitive. Yeah. Uh, another sort of interesting interpretation is that uh, Miles Morales, maybe the most recognizable other version of Spider-Man, has a spider sense, but it's not as not as strong as Peter Parker's. And so, like, the spider sense, I guess, is one of those sort of, like, in the comics. Potentially, like, it's hard to define, so it makes things really tricky. Like, to what extent does his spider sense extend? Yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of like it as just sort of enhanced senses. Not, like, daredevil-enhanced senses, but just, like, like a hair trigger, effectively. Yeah, it, it, it he has moments of it, but it's not happening all the time to him. I forgot about this. Uh, one of the, the sort of utility belt things that Spider-Man initially had, along with his, like, spider signal light in his belt, were spider tracers. And spider tracers broadcast on a signal that is detectable by his spider sense. Oh, interesting. So his spider sense has some sort of radio component, too? Uh, yeah, which I don't, I don't like much. I, I personally kind of don't want very much technology in Spider-Man. Outside of his web shooters, I guess. And as much as I really, really enjoyed uh, Homecoming, the the Tony Stark-influenced spider suit, to me, feels like a detachment from the character. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, at the end of the day, Spider-Man is not rich. And Spider-Man is very, like... I, I, we can kind of all see ourselves in Spider-Man. So him to be wearing this, you know, incalculably high-tech and expensive piece of technology sort of takes that away. You know, it again creates this barrier of, oh, if I got bitten by a spider, I guess I wouldn't be that good. Um, by that same stroke, I love his homemade Spider-Man costume that is terrible. It's basically just a hoodie, right? It's, yeah, it, it, like, no, it's like a, a, a balaclava. Is that how you say it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and a sweatshirt and his gym shoes, and it's wonderful. And that, like, costumes in Spider-Man is always something that's kind of funny, especially in the films. Like, in the comics, too. But there's, like, a weird sort of suspension of disbelief in comics that, like, if you get superpowers, you also learn how to sew really, really fast. Oh, and you can make Hollywood-grade costumes, (laughs) you know, in a matter of a week. Yeah. The Sam Raimi one, I think, hand waves it maybe in the most dramatic way. Mm -hmm. Like, you go from the costume that he wears when he's fighting Bonesaw, which is not great, um, to, like, the next next time we see him, he is looking a lot better. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that costume, that costume is very intricate. The Mark, the Mark Webb version, definitely, they, they, they give you a moment of trying to explain how he makes it, but I still don't buy it. I don't know which one I prefer. Uh, I will say the Mark Webb one isn't quite as form-fitting. There's sort of like a sagginess around his neck, not sagginess necessarily, but like you'll see wrinkles around his neck. It feels more authentically a costume. Mm. Yeah, whereas the, I mean, I love the Sam Raimi one, but it, the, it's the raised webbing, I think, that really is, at least to some extent, distracting for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it reads on film, I think, very effectively, but I don't like the raised webbing. And I don't know what it is about uh, superhero movies and the desire to, to put texture underneath solid colors. Yeah, and give it, you know, three or four layers just for just for the heck of it. I mean, even in the 2009 Star Trek, the uniforms had had that sort of, like, texture to them that mm-hmm. reminded me of the spider-man films yeah this the costume he wears uh that uh toby mcguire wears when he fights bonesaw is is mm, a really great take on the homemade it is a sweatshirt it is with a spray-painted spider on it he made a stencil then he's got what looks like maybe 
some sort of gardening gloves or yeah. baseball like batting gloves and then blue sweatpants and it is it is really really believable as something that a young person would make mm-hmm. as opposed to as opposed to the you know hyper costumes uh, i also think that the homecoming civil war did a nice job of like Tom Holland's character has his homemade kind of wonderfully terrible costume, but then Tony Stark is like, nah, dude, this is how, this is what's up. I really love um, that they, you know, in universe for the Tom Holland outfit, they have a reason for why his eyes move. I really appreciated that because it gives the character much more expressiveness, you know, something that you would maybe see in a cartoon, but isn't Mm -hmm. necessarily uh, possible in the real world. You can do with the way that they've designed that suit. Yeah, the the concept there is that his his senses are too sensitive, right? Mm-hmm. And it's to limit light. It's basically acting like a um, my goodness, what's the word I'm looking for from a camera? Aperture. Thank you. <laughs> it's basically working like an aperture. Um, I also like that that costume has a the, the Tony Stark one has a button you press and it fits you right. Very Back to the Future Part 2. Very Back to the Future Part 2, but if you're going to go for the super science, go all in on the super science. Totally. Mm-hmm. One detail that I really appreciate is the presence of the web wings. A classic uh, design cue from, you know, the very first Spider-Man, right? Yeah. Um, and actually, it was Jack Kirby that drew, I didn't realize this, but in Amazing Fantasy number 1, I believe the cover is Jack Kirby. Okay, so that's where his uh, his role in the creation of Spider-Man comes in. Yeah, and so it's an interesting story. I've been reading a lot about Spider-Man, um, and so originally, there's some. It's not super clear. It's a lot of like he said, he said, he said, because the comic book industry historically was a lot of male stuff. But yeah, all dudes. Yeah, which is it's great that that's changing. But yeah. It was uh, the original cover where we see him carrying the dude and swinging. That is drawn by Jack Kirby, but inked by Steve Ditko. Uh, Ditko would do all of the interior arts in the initial Spider-Man stories, and it, like very iconically do all of the art in the initial Spider-Man stories. Um, and so, like the there's been a couple of explanations offered why this was not another Jack Lee, uh, Jack Kirby, Stanley team up. Uh, one is that he had uh, Lee had or Kirby had too many projects already on his slate mm-hmm. uh another is that his interpretation of spider-man was a little too heroic and not like sort of scrawny kid enough um but yeah there's definitely some some interesting history around it yeah that's fascinating yeah it's it's more complicated than i can articulately sum up but uh but yeah there's some there's some some doesn't seem to be a perfect consensus on the origins there yeah, I don't know. Costumes and superheroes are weird. Like, Ant-Man, I think, did a nice job insofar as that it's not a costume. That's what you have to wear to be a tiny person. No, it makes sense. It's like a spacesuit, yep. so I'm on board. Captain America's suit is as as fun and grounded as those movies have been. <laughs> it's, his, his, his suit is a little challenging to reconcile. I do, I appreciate the Batman Begins approach of, like, make it tactical and logical, but... I guess the idea is that Captain America is supposed to be a symbol, and so we we paint him, you know, red, white, and blue. Also, maybe to draw the fire of the enemies because he's going to be able to take it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think in the first Spider-Man, uh, sorry, the first Captain America film, it's fun that they make that his over-the-top outfit for the USO show that he's, you know, uh, taking part in and you know, sell- selling war bonds across the United States. Um, for sure. But then. You know, he does have an adventure in that, but then he pretty quickly gets his his next costume, which feels tactical, but doesn't feel of the era as much as I 
necessary. I still like it, but it could feel more of that era than it does. Yeah, I think I think that the the costume he has in the Ultimates is much more realistic. Uh, yeah, the the Ultimate imprint version of Captain America in World War Two feels like it is cobbled together out of GI issue stuff, but for a superhero. Yeah, I mean, costumes and superheroes are fascinating. There's a website that I don't think is active anymore called Project Rooftop. Oh, I remember that, yeah. I, I, I used to check that on the regular. I don't know if they are still doing work, but basically it's like just fat. Oh, yeah, I guess they're doing stuff. Okay, cool. So by all means, check out Project Project colon Rooftop, and it is a, it's a website about superhero fashion. Yeah, they'll have different artists sort of reimagine superheroes in different ways, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a fun exercise the the fashion of superheroes is kind of neat what's your take on spider-man growing up and spider-man not just being oh how could we not talk about j jonah jameson oh yeah we have to we have to talk about j jonah jameson i think that uh jk simmons in the same way that patrick stewart being cast as professor x is like yeah of course he is jk simmons is um uh, J. Jonah Jameson is just so iconic and such a perfect encapsulation of that character. Um, but he's a villain for Spider-Man that goes back a really long time, and I love that. It, one of Spider-Man's biggest villains is basically the press. And kind of his own boss, at least in the stories where um, Peter Parker is a photographer for the Bugle, right? Yeah, massive conflicts of interest. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, J.K. Simmons in the in the Sam Raimi movies, uh, that is like the, the stars aligned in a way that they haven't since on the day that he was cast for that role. <laughs> uh, so in the comic books, the sort of origin of uh, J.K. I'm not J.K. Simmons. He doesn't actually hate Spider-Man, I don't think. <laughs> um, of J. Jonah Jameson's dislike of Spider-Man is that J. Jonah Jameson's son is a astronaut whose space capsule is going to crash to Earth and Spider-Man saves the day. And basically, like, kind of steals the coverage on that one. Like, gets all the attention for it. That that would be something that the head of a newspaper would be concerned with. Like, oh, he upstaged my son. This was supposed to be, you know, his his heroic moment. Yeah, and so I like that he's so petty and ridiculous that that's, a, that's it. That'll work. Mm-hmm. I hate him. He's the worst now. Really, really wonderful. But, yeah, the idea that Spider-Man is sort of... Spider-Man never gets the recognition of the other sort of superheroes in that ga- in that world, right? Like, the Fantastic Four are, like, national heroes, and the Avengers are, like, national heroes. And even the Hulk occasionally has better PR than Spider-Man. Spider-Man has a perpetual news cycle working against him, and to a certain extent, Peter Parker is complicit in that. Mm-hmm. Insofar he keeps as Spider-Man he per- in the news so he can pay his rent. <laughs> Yeah, but almost like against his own best interests to a certain extent as Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a that's a strange relationship. I like the idea that that in in uh, in a lot of these these classic Marvel stories that there are different tiers of heroes. That yeah, you do have Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four as people who you know they would be sitting down with Time Magazine to have a cover story about them. But you also have daredevil or spider-man who are more ground floor type superheroes yeah absolutely and like spider-man is is very much a like street level superhero in most instances and i I really like that spider-man and i think homecoming did probably the best job of any media version of spider-man of like having him feel in a lot of ways like just a part of that city right that a part of queen Mm -hmm. and having you know 
having people be both totally willing to yell at him and like get mad and annoyed with him as well as be like, hey, thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Yeah. I like that a lot. You know, and a different kind of street level superhero, like Daredevil is like an urban legend kind of superhero. It's like same with Batman. Spider-Man is just sort of like a fixture of the neighborhood. And I appreciate that's why he's that. your your neighborhood friendly Spider Man, right? That's that's kind of his catchphrase. Friendly neighborhood, but I mean, who's who's oh, sorry. track? <laughs> I don't know. Spider Man's really important to me because I think more than most superheroes, Spider Man's very everyman, and I I love that about him. Ultimately, I'm as much as I thought there might be a chance being adopted and all. Uh, I I never did find a space capsule, so I'm pretty sure I was born of Earth, and my parents. Uh, were not like multi-billionaires and did not leave me a huge fortune to invest in my crime-fighting antics. And I was not selected by the government for a super soldier project. And I'm not a physicist who has an experiment go wrong. And Spider-Man is just a kid who yeah. gets more than he asks for. And I love how grounded he is, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's amazing, hence the amazing Spider-Man. But he is just a kid who has to sort of rise to the occasion, even though it's inconvenient and difficult for him. And I think that that sort of core humanity of the character is really, really key. And that's something that is sort of persistent across all versions is real humanity. Yeah, he is. He's a very, he's a very human character who has to deal with things that uh, a lot of us have to deal with every day, making the right decision or, you know, prioritizing things. Those are, those are all making rent. Yep. <laughs> uh, delivering like the, a pizza the greatest villain in spider-man 2 is like his inability to balance a checkbook poor peter parker um i mean like that's parker luck right you have to have parker luck for to feel like spider-man yep i, I mean ah, just i i want to just watch that pizza delivery scene on loop that ultimately to me just captures what i love about spider-man really really effectively mm-hmm. well it's him it's him in his in his natural environment you know he is he is a part of New York City. He's a New Yorker, and the the guy just can't catch a break. <laughs> exactly, and it's beautiful. It's 100% beautiful. Thank you for listening. If you disagree, have alternative headcanons, a headcanon you'd like us to talk about, or just want to say hi, drop us a line at looseheadcanonpod at gmail.com. We want to thank our awesome producer slash engineer, Boki. Our theme music is by Checkmate, so huge thanks to him as well. For more of his music, check out soundcloud.com slash checkmate underscore official. We also want to thank you for listening. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and please, 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 please tell your friends to check us out as well. Thank you so much. Bye.